This is VOA News reporting by remote. I'm Michael Brown. U.S. President Joe Biden is back in Washington following a five-day trip to Europe. The trip highlighted the key U.S. role in mounting a strong allied response to Vladimir Putin's aggression in Ukraine. Biden attended the Group of Seven Leaders meeting in Germany, which was followed by a three-day NATO summit in Madrid. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky said on Thursday that the withdrawal of Russian forces from Snake Island would significantly change the situation in the Black Sea. In the evening address, Zelensky said the pullout would limit Russian activities but acknowledged it would not guarantee safety in the Black Sea area yet. And judges across the United States are weighing in on whether state constitutions allow abortions after the Supreme Court last week overturned Roe v. Wade. AP correspondent Mike Hempen has more on the story. A judge in Kentucky has temporarily blocked that state's nearly total ban on abortions. While in Florida, a judge says he'll temporarily stop a 15-week ban from taking effect. The rulings paused so-called trigger laws, which were designed to take effect after the high court ruled to end federal constitutional protections for abortions. Florida Republican Governor Ron DeSantis says his state will appeal. In other states, there have been disputes involving abortion bans that have been on the books for generations but never enforced. The flurry of activity has caused confusion and left patients and clinics scrambling. I'm Mike Hempen. Chinese leader Xi Jinping will attend Friday's celebrations marking the 25th anniversary of Hong Kong's handover from Britain with once annual demonstrations, silence, and a massive security presence in force. As always, for details on much more news, we invite you to join us on our website. That is voanews.com, also on the VOA mobile app. Via remote, this is VOA News. The Supreme Court has made a historic change minutes after ending a contentious term. AP Washington correspondent Sagar Magani reports. Ketanji Brown-Jackson is now the high court's first black female justice after being sworn in by Chief Justice John Roberts. I am pleased to welcome Justice Jackson to the court and to our common calling. For the first time, there are now four female justices, with Jackson replacing former boss Stephen Breyer. She won't change the court's 6-3 conservative majority, one that issued several major rulings this term. Last week, it overturned the nationwide right to abortion and expanded gun rights. Today, it dealt a blow to fighting climate change, limiting how the EPA can curb power plant emissions. President Biden calls it another devastating decision that aims to take the nation backwards. Sagar Magani, Washington. Ferdinand Bongbong Marcos Jr., son of former dictator Ferdinand Marcos, became the 17th president of the Philippines Thursday, successfully fulfilling his family's mission to return to power 36 years after people's uprisings toppled his father. The 64-year-old Marcos ran on a campaign of national unity, which was an invitation to forget the atrocities of his father's dictatorial regime. Critics say Marco's May victory can be attributed to decades-on historical revisionism, efforts by the family, and massive disinformation on social media platforms. President Rodrigo Duterte skipped the inauguration, but the two met inside the palace before the swearing-in. The World Health Organization says the number of coronavirus cases rose by 18%, in the last week, with more than 4.1 million new cases reported, reported globally, the U.N. health agency said the worldwide number of deaths remained relatively similar to the week before at about 8,500. 
but increased in three regions, the Middle East, Southeast Asia, and the Americas. And weeks after acknowledging its first coronavirus infections, North Korea appears to be blaming the outbreak on balloons sent by defector activists in South Korea. North Korean officials said Friday they traced the outbreak to an inter-Korean border region where a teenager and a five-year-old came in contact with an alien thing in early April. The statement published in the state-run Korean Central News Agency did not specify what objects were, but later warned residents to be on the lookout for balloons and other alien things in the area. For more news, please join us, voanews.com. I'm Michael Brown reporting by remote, VOA News. Good morning, Africa, and welcome to Debrek Africa from the Voice of America. I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington. Today is Friday, July the 1st, and here are some of the stories we're covering for you this morning. In Ethiopia's Afar region, landmines left over from the 19-month Tigray conflict are making life harder for people in the region as they struggle with a record-breaking drought. The medical uh, treatment. And then uh, they've been provided to with psychosocial support. The community has to be given mind risk education in order to really keep themselves away from uh, the, the mind. A member of Uganda's parliament says that what is happening to opposition leader Dr. Chiza Besige is persecution and not prosecution. He was denied bail, and the magistrate then said he would not give him bail because when he was given bail, he went out and committed a similar offense. And a new book highlights the form in which Nigerians use popular and visual expressions on social media to create social and political change. We'll have those stories plus sports coming up right here on Daybreak Africa. Stay tuned. And for our top story, about 340 people were killed in an attack in the western part of Ethiopia's Oromia region earlier this month. That's the Prime Minister's spokesperson saying on Thursday he's blaming a militia formerly allied to an opposition party. Oromia, the home of Ethiopia's largest ethnic group and others, has experienced unrest for many years, rooted in grievances about political marginalization and neglect by the central government. The group has previously denied involvement and called for an independent investigation. A United Nations-appointed International Commission of Human Rights experts in Ethiopia called for member states to provide it with experienced investigators and other logistical support so it can scrutinize atrocities such as these attacks in Oromia. In the northwest of Ethiopia's Afar region, landmines left over from the 19-month Tigray conflict are making harder struggle with the record-breaking drought even deadlier. Landmines have killed children and livestock and are making people afraid to collect water despite the drought. Henry Wilkins reports from Shifra in Ethiopia. The battles between Ethiopian government-aligned troops and Tigrayan forces may have stopped, but herders in western Afar region are left fighting for survival. 
The record drought in the Horn of Africa that has killed millions of livestock has been made worse by landmines left by combatants. Herda Hassan Arebti Hassan's four-year-old daughter was injured by a landmine and they're also killing his animals. He says landmines are everywhere around here and many animals have died because they've stepped on them, the landmines. He says goats stand on them and they explode. Landmines and other explosives are so common here that some locals use the wood from their crates as building materials. Nine-year-old Ali Amur says his ten-year-old friend was killed by a landmine while they were herding goats together. He describes how he left the house with his friend to go and tend to the goats. We were just there to take care of the goats, but my friend died, he said matter-of-factly. He says his friend was playing, throwing stones at the landmine. Then he picked it up and threw it to the ground. Ali was also injured. His father says landmines make them all afraid to collect water, despite the drought. He says there's a serious drought here and that it's difficult for the people and the animals. The community doesn't know what to do and he spent a lot of money to buy food for family and animals. We need the landmines removed from the area where we used to live, he says. After speaking with locals, VOA was unable to establish which side in the conflict was responsible for laying the mines. Bekele Gonfar is executive director of a non-profit in Addis Ababa that supports landmine victims. He says people in mined areas of Ethiopia, like Chifra, need help. Number one is the medical uh, treatment. And then uh, they've been provided to, with psychosocial support, which includes uh, peer counselling, particularly that's what we, our organisation is basically engaged in and operating in. The, the public and uh, the community has to be given mind risk education in order to really keep themselves away from uh, the, the mines. But with the ongoing droughts, people in Chifra have little choice but to risk landmines if they want to find food for their animals and collect water for their survival. Henry Wilkins for VOA News, Chifra, Ethiopia. A member of Uganda's parliament says that what is happening to opposition leader Dr Chiza Besije is persecution and not prosecution. This after a high court judge Thursday denied Dr. Besige and his co-defendant bail on the ground that they should have first tabled their petition with the chief magistrate's court. Besige, a four-time presidential candidate and currently leader of the People's Front for Transition, was arrested for the second time on June the 15th for disrupting business, traffic and inciting violence as he tried to mobilize ordinary Ugandans to join him in protesting the high cost of living. He's been in jail since June 15th, and parliamentarian Francis Mijuche tells VOA's James Barty that the high court judge's decision is double standard because the court had previously heard and decided on another bail petition for Dr. Chiza Besije. The message was uh, presented to court today. He was appearing for an application for bail in the High Court. This was following the fact that uh, in the magistrate's court uh, a few days ago, he was denied bail. And the magistrate then said he could not give him bail because when he was given bail, he went out and committed a similar offense. And then we wondered how a magistrate could uh, prejudge somebody who is supposedly presumed innocent until proven guilty. So, all in all, it is not prosecution, it is persecution. Courts have become political. They are used to further 
operates in Ugandans and it is very unfortunate. And these are not offenses, but they are charges because they are not yet proven in court. The High Court judge said that uh, Dr. Besiji and his co-defendants should have first approached the chief magistrate. So why didn't Dr. Besiji do that? But this is not the first time Dr. Besiji is appearing after having been denied. Therefore, he comes to the court, to high court, and they, they listen to him. So what has changed? Because the law says once you have been denied bail in the magistrate's court, you can either go to the chief magistrate's court or high court. Both courts have jurisdiction over the matter. Where he was challenging the condition of bail of 30 million shillings, they did not push him back to the chief magistrate to say you have jumped a step, first go back and go through all the other stages and then come to the high court. They handled it and said, no, this was a lot of money, uh, 30 million in Ghana shillings so much. So I think this is double standards because we could see that this order to deny him bail was brought from outside the court by somebody who came and delivered it to the state attorney. The state attorney uh, raised it, and the judge said, okay, I had John come back at 2, and at 2 he, ne- he never came back. Dr. Besiji's wife, Mwini Biyama, was also in the court. Uh, could you tell us uh, why she was there? Dr. Besiji's wife, I mean, uh, engineer um, Wiliganyma, was in court. As a surety, she came and... Uh, stood surety for the husband, that is why he, he, she had come. So the sureties are more substantial because one of them is a person who is closer to the suspect. But um, even then, the matter of um, the application was dismissed on technical grounds that it should go back to the chief magistrate's court. And we know that even in the chief magistrate's court, bail will not be granted because this is persecution. So Dr. Besiji has been sent back to jail. What's next? We will make another application tomorrow. We don't know when he, they will tell us to, to appear again, but tomorrow we shall make uh, another attempt to the chief magistrate's court. But for now, Ugandans must know that the entire responsibility of liberating the country Rests in our hand, not in the court. Francis Mwizuche is a member of parliament and the People's Front for Transition, led by Dr. Chiza Besije. He was speaking from Kampala with VOA's James Bati. Debrick Africa continues. In Nigeria, the government says that social media companies will be required to register and open local country offices and appoint contact persons with the government. A statement from the National Information Technology Development Agency said the regulations were developed with input from major social media companies, including Twitter, Facebook, WhatsApp, and others. Now, while there is no consensus on how the new regulations will impact social media use in Africa's most populous nation, analysts worry that the government could use this as a pretext to control social media use in the country. And this, in turn, will affect how Nigerian youth use the platforms to mobilize around issues such as human rights, democratic reforms, and police brutality. And supporters of the new rules argue that the regulations will provide a necessary check on the power of social media companies which have unlimited control on content consumed by Nigerian youth. Meanwhile, several new studies are exploring the intersection of social media and politics in Nigeria, including a new book by Professor James Yeku, an assistant professor of African Digital Humanities at the University of Kansas. 
The book titled Social Media, Pop Culture and Performance in Nigeria highlights the form in which Nigerians use popular and visual expressions on social media to disrupt state power. I reached Professor Yeku in Kansas to talk about how social media has been a driver for some of Nigeria's most popular social and political movements. So I want to ask you about social media use in Nigeria. If there's anything about Nigerian culture that feeds well into social media use. Yeah, for one, you could think about the expressive nature of Nigerian cultural forms. Nigerians, like you know, are very confident people who are quite expressive and loud in a good way. So when you come on social media, you tend to find that, I mean, that tendency replicated in a lot of ways. You find people sharing melodramatic memes from Nollywood, for instance, to support their own commentaries on, on say, Facebook or, or Twitter. It's that Nigerian braggadocious, you know, confidence in, in display. And all of those also feed off into how people express themselves on the internet. You find a lot of visual forms, a lot of comedic forms, a lot of comics and you know, what people are calling Instagram comedies today. You find a lot of Nigerians on TikTok and, and Instagram expressing themselves in such a way that draw from this rich, you know, cultural forms of the country itself. And which explains why over the last four years, uh, there's been a global embracing of uh, Nigerian culture through the music, the Afrobeat music. Exactly. With Boma Boy winning the Grammy, and but but not just even music, even Nollywood it, itself. In, in recent years, I've I've seen this, you know, interaction between say Nollywood and even Nigerian music and social media, especially as people bring forms and artistic expressions from this natural contest into Nollywood and then take forms from Nollywood into social media, right? Mm-hmm. I should say forms from Nollywood and this traditional contest into social media. So when people share Nollywood memes on social media. It's this relationship between an older media form and new media technologies. Aside from Nigerians using social media to comment on on culture and society, how are they mobilizing around political issues? That's that's a big one. And uh, viewers, listeners probably remember the Bring Back Our Girls movement in 2014 where you had a lot of Nigerians coming out to protest against Boko Haram's kidnapping of the Chiba girls. And then in 2020, the famous NSAS movement against police brutality, where a lot of people using Twitter to coordinate and mobilize protests all over the country. I, I, I should say that Nigerians in this particular protest situation did not just use you know, social media to, to rally people to join their cause. They actually went to the street of Lagos and Abuja, making this important connection between offline and online environment. It's always important to, to know that both actually feed into each other. But, but, but indeed, Twitter, Facebook, and all of these social media platforms have been very important to how Nigerians mobilize different people to, to around a common cause. In the, in the case of of answers, it was the movement against police brutality, and then the Twitter ban itself, which which resulted from that. How effective would you say 
they were in terms of effecting political and social change in bringing and galvanizing global support to this cause when they use social media? I, I think in the context of answers, those who mobilize support and mobilize one another around the common cause to protest against police brutality were effective to a large extent. At least the government decided to reorganize this this anti-robbery squad that was the, the culprit for, I mean, the initial catalyst for the protest. So in that sense, we can say there was some kind of material change because government responded to their to their demands. On the other hand, we cannot forget that technology, digital media in particular in this context is also a side of ambivalence. Ambivalence in the sense that it's not necessarily all good. There are also some downsides to the digital media. So I, I, I don't want us just always romanticizing social media and thinking it was all perfect, everything's, you know, Eldora, everything is utopia. That was Professor James Yeku, an assistant professor of African digital humanities at the University of Kansas. He's also the author of a book titled Social Media, Popular Culture and Performance in Nigeria. You're listening to Daybreak Africa on The Voice of America. The government of Malawi has received $14.2 million in insurance money for thousands of people affected by climate change-related events like Tropical Cyclone Anna. President Razaras Chakwera received the payout this week from the African Risk Capacity Group, a specialized agency of the African Union that helps countries cope with extreme weather emergencies. Lamek Masina reports from Blantyre. For the past 10 years, Malawi has experienced prolonged dry spells affecting many households through wilting, scorching or killing crops and leading to food shortages. The latest episode, including flooding caused by tropical storm Anna in February, it killed 38 people, displaced more than 100,000 and affected near 200,000 households in the country. African Risk Capacity Group, or ARC, is an agency of the African Union that provides insurance to member states. The Malawi government signed on to four cluster policies which cover the different regions in the country. Motai Anthony Maluping is board chairperson for the ARC. Well, it is very important uh, because it enables uh, countries uh, to immediately provide uh, relief after disasters to make sure that people don't suffer and, and particularly vulnerable groups. President Lazarus Chakwera addressed the public in a speech after accepting the insurance money. This payout is the fruit of the tireless efforts of officials in my administration to live by the values of sovereign leadership, uniting Malawians, prospering together, ending corruption and the rule of law. For instance, as a country, we have long been trapped in the vicious cycle of unrestrained consumption, eating everything we get from a good harvest without keeping anything for a potentially bad harvest in the future. Crops affected by the floods this year include maize, rice, cotton, sorghum, and tobacco. Madali Tsuwilima Gambaua is the Deputy Minister of Agriculture. She says the payout will provide key support for targeted food 
and cash assistance to those affected by drought. We are happy that uh, most of the problems, if not all of the problems that we've had relating to the weather uh, conditions, either floods or, or lack of um, enough rains, um, from, from that we, we should be able to address the challenges that we have made. According to the African Risk Capacity Group, Malawi last received a payout of $8 million US million from its drought insurance in 2016. Lamek Masina for VOA News, Planta, Malawi. Experts in biodiversity have laid out their top three priorities for the post-2020 global biodiversity framework. Brian O'Donnell, director of campaign for Nature, spoke to Ricky Shryok about what these priorities are and why they need to be urgently addressed. The first priority is the protection of at least 30% of the world's lands and oceans. The number one driver of biodiversity loss is the destruction of habitat. And so protected and conserved areas help maintain habitat, which is important to maintain biodiversity. The next priority is to ensure that the rights and leadership of indigenous peoples and local communities are recognized and centered. They've been the world's best defenders of biodiversity for centuries. And by ensuring that their rights are recognized and their territories are secure, we can make major progress for biodiversity. And the third most important issue, I think, is finance. Without adequate resources going towards biodiversity, we won't see these targets that are being envisioned to be met and implemented. So increased finance, especially from wealthy nations, developing nations, is a key priority. What is the urgency for these priorities? Can you give me some real uh, impacts that are going on being felt by populations? Sure. Um, in, in May of 2019, the world's largest assessment of the state of biodiversity on the planet was released, and it said that biodiversity is declining at rates unprecedented in human history, that we are seeing real consequences for people by the loss of the services that nature provides for people, clean air, storm protection, pollination. That was Brian O'Donnell, director of campaign for Nature. He was speaking to Ricky Shryok from Lisbon. And now it's time for Daybreak Africa Sports. With that, we go to Abuja, Nigeria with Samson O'Malley. Good morning to you, Samson. Good Friday morning to you too, Jackson. We begin the sport with the list of nominees for the CAF Awards 2022, released by the Continent Football Governing Body, CAF. The revealed nominees are mainly for the men's categories, namely Player of the Year, Interclub Player of the Year, Young Player of the Year, National Team of the Year, and Club of the Year. The nominees for the women's categories will be announced in due course. Some of the players who made the men's Player of the Year nominees include Riyad Mahrez, Bertrand Taure, and Andre Frank Zambo Angusia, Carl Taco Akambi, Vincent Abubakar, Frank Casey, Sebastian Haller, Mohamed El Nani, Mohamed Salah, Musa Baro, Nabi Keita, Viz Basoma, Ashraf Hakimi, Edward Mendy, Kalido Kulibali, and Sadomani. The CAF Awards 2022 will be held on the 21st of July 2022 in Rabat, Morocco. And now to women's football. World Cup places will be up for grabs at the Women's African Cup of Nations, which kicks off in Morocco on Saturday, with the top four finishers guaranteed a sport at the 2023 finals in Australia and New Zealand, with Nigeria's dominant position in the women's game on the continent under threat. Super Falcon striker Asisat Oshola says the team will not dwell on old glory. 
going into the tournament. Um, I think the most important thing is um, to make sure we get a ticket to the World Cup. Um, that's the primary aim to qualify for the World Cup. And then also possibly um, to win the tournament. It's one of the um, goals we have going into this tournament as a team. In tennis news, Tunisian tennis star Ange Jabour will on Friday play unseeded French woman Diane Pari, who beat Japanese qualifier Mai Hontama in the last 32. Third seed Ange Jabour East through to the third round of Wimbledon on Wednesday, beating Polish qualifier Katarzyna Kawa 6 4 6 love. Ahead of her Friday's match against Pari, the world number two says she will take each match at a time while hoping she will improve as the competition progresses. I love grass, I love playing here. Uh, I don't look at the draw much, but I know who's on my side, obviously. But uh, yeah, I'm just gonna keep focusing more on myself, more doing what I love to do and uh, imposing my game. Uh, um, I'm just um, loving playing here and uh, I hope my game will keep improving for the next matches. Finally, in cycling news, the Rwanda National Road Cycling Championship is back to the streets this weekend after COVID-19 halted the staging of the competition. The cycling governing body, Fawasi, unveiled the itineraries for the upcoming race, which will be a two-day race and is expected to open with an individual time trial race slated for Saturday, July 2, before the Sunday's grand finale. And that's it on Daybreak Africa Sports. I am Samson Omale in Abuja, Nigeria. It's back to you, Jackson, in Washington. And that's it for this edition of Daybreak Africa. We thank you for spending this morning with us. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and on YouTube, where you can watch our videos and our TV shows. Until next time, I'm Jackson Vungani in Washington, wishing you a great weekend ahead, Africa. Thank you.